Well, hello. Well, I'm Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor of Woodland Hills Church. I've been gone for uh, a couple of weeks. Had a vacation with uh, my wife and family and some friends down in Mexico. Uh, there's one day where it was down, it was 86 down there and six below up here. And, uh, <laughs> oh, that's mature. I know I am, but what are you? <laughs> I uh, had a great time. Uh, the last night there, I uh, sliced my toe open, almost cut the thing off. If you want to see pictures of it, it's on my website, <laughs> uh, gregboy.org. But fortunately, one of the folks down, uh, down there with us was uh, Jen Halverson, who's one of our missionaries that we support in Haiti, uh, short-term mission, and she took a vacation with us over there. And so at three in the morning, we called on her, and she came over and stitched me up in the middle of the night, and it didn't tickle, but... Uh, uh, this toe is still on, and uh, one of these days they say I'll actually begin to feel it again. But uh, it, it came out okay. Then I got back, and two days later I had to go to San Diego for a conference. Mexico and San Diego in January or February. That's not bad. I, I have a tough life. I suffer for Jesus. <laughs> but at this conference, uh, it was, um, I, I had a chance to be on a panel, actually kind of a dialogue, actually kind of a debate, uh, with Chuck Colson. And Shane Claiborne on, uh, on faith and politics. <laughs> My favorite topic. And uh, had a great time. It, just had a, it, it was really a, a great time. That may be showing on National Public Radio. We'll let you know if that, if that happens. Um, Shane Claiborne, I don't know if you've ever, Claiborne, I don't know if you've ever read his book, Irresistible Revolution, but I encourage you to read it. He's got a new book out called uh, Jesus for President. Uh, and, he's, he's, yeah, and he's just a wild guy, dreadlock, southern accent, and he's just cool. And he and I just hit it off. I mean, we were just in the middle of the thing giving each other bear hugs. And poor Chuck, he was on the other side, so <laughs> we ganged up on him. But it was a good time. And I, I think we're going to be having him here at some point. I, I hope that that happens. I also want to say thanks again to Scott for filling in. Uh, didn't he do a great job? And then, amen, we're blessed. And Dwayne Polk. Dwayne Polk, another wild man for Jesus. And I just appreciate the message he brought last week. Amen. We're, we're, we're blessed people here. We're blessed people. We're going from the book of Luke, and so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Luke. And oh yes, one more thing I wanted to say. Last month was Black History Month, and I just pointed out uh, how we're making progress here uh, in light of the fact that for the first time in American history, we have an African-American who's a viable candidate for the presidency of the United States, and that's a good thing. Whatever you think about us politics doesn't matter. That's a good thing. By the same means, this month is Women's History Month, and for the first time in United States history, we have a woman who's a viable candidate for the presidency of the United States. And that's a good thing. Amen. I don't care what you think about our politics. People seem to either love her or hate her, but that's not my point. My point is that we are inching forward in the conviction that uh, all people are created equal, and this is a land of equal opportunities. And so that is a good thing. Amen. All right. You mentioned Hillary's name, and some if people get yay or that's, that's politics. I want to entitle this message "Taking Back the House." Taking back the house. Uh oh, get ready. We're going to bite off a new chunk of scripture here as we rush through the Book of Luke in our study. This is what we do here. Nothing fancy. We just take it verse by verse, and so we're up to verse fourteen of Luke chapter eleven. And I'm going to read eight verses here this morning. And as I read the passage, I'll make a few historical comments uh, just to help us understand what the passage is saying. And then uh, at the end of it, I'm going to get to the meat of what I want to share this morning. But it says, 
Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Now just note the, 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 the phrase, a demon that was mute. Uh, that is the literal Greek, and it's an odd phrase. Was the demon unable to speak? But then it says the man couldn't speak. What's up with that? We could do a lot of theology around that. But the, the, the gist of it is that it seems to be that there was a demon who, was, who specialized in making people mute. In the New Testament, by no means are all illnesses seen as being demonically caused or influenced, but some are. And we need to be aware of that. And so Jesus drove this demon out of the man. It says the crowd was amazed. Now, part of that amazement is simply because Jesus did an exorcism, and that's kind of amazing. But it's even more amazing in the first century for this reason. Uh, it was widely believed that mute demons, demons that caused muteness, were the hardest kind to cast out of people. And the reason is because there was a widespread belief, it wasn't based on scripture, but it was just sort of a widespread belief, that the most effective way to cast a demon out of a person was to first get the demon's name. Because if you got their name, you had a power over them. And then you could cast the demon out. The trouble with a mute demon, however, is that it won't give you its name. And so they thought that mute demons are difficult, if not impossible, to cast out. Jesus here cast the demon out, and so the people are really amazed. At least some of the people are amazed. Others thought this. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Now the word Beelzebul, most scholars agree that it means something like Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. And it was just a common derogatory term, a derogatory way of referring to Satan. So Beelzebul. And note here that there are three responses that the crowd has. On the one hand, there are those who are amazed. Wow! He could cast out a demon of mutinous and he didn't even get its name. Then there are those who are kind of interested, but they want more. Oh yeah, you cast a demon out, but can you give us a sign from heaven? And then there are those who declare war on Jesus. Oh, he cast demons out, but that's because he is the devil. He's Beelzebul. And so now Jesus is going to address that crowd. Jesus knew their thoughts, the scripture says, and he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebul. The, the idea here is this. Jesus is simply pointing out the logic. If I'm Satan casting out my own demons, then there's a sort of civil war going on in the satanic kingdom. But if there's a civil war going on in the satanic kingdom, then it would be brought to ruin. Obviously, it's not yet brought to ruin. It's alive and well on planet Earth. So your argument just doesn't work. And then Jesus says this. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. Okay, now that's an opaque and rather unusual statement. And so commentators disagree about what exactly Jesus is getting at. And I don't feel it's worth the investment of time to try to resolve all of that. But the basic logic is pretty clear. Jesus is saying this. You say that I'm casting out demons by uh, Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Well, first of all, that argument doesn't work. But secondly, if I'm casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, then why don't you say the same thing about the folks on your side that cast out demons? And the, the implication is 
that by logic, if you're going to say that they're casting out demons by the power of God, why don't you say that I'm casting out demons by the power of God? And what he's getting at, I believe, is he's showing how totally arbitrary the judgment of these folks are. The only reason that they're saying that Jesus is casting out demons by Satan himself, by the power of Satan himself, is because they don't like Jesus. He's not part of their program. He's not fitting into their little box. And Jesus is exposing how arbitrary that is. And then Jesus goes on. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The dome in which God is king is in your midst. If I, what I'm doing is from God. Now he uses this phrase, finger of God. It's the only time that Jesus ever used that phrase. And the only other time in the Bible where it's used is in Exodus chapter 8. If you go back to Exodus chapter 8, you'll find this. Moses and Aaron are trying to get Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And so they're doing these miracles that are bringing plagues on Israel to get the, uh, the children of Israel uh, free. Um, so far, they've done two miracles that have brought about plagues, but Pharaoh's magicians, who apparently practiced a sort of demonic magic, were able to replicate them. But then on the third miracle, uh, God tells Aaron to strike, put his rod on the sand, and the sand turns into gnats. And then they have a plague of gnats throughout Egypt. And Pharaoh's magicians aren't able to replicate that. Because demonic magic, black magic, uh, is able to destroy life sometimes, but it's never able to create life. That belongs to God uh, alone. Uh, and so the, the magicians, uh, Pharaoh's magicians say, we have seen the finger of God. They have to concede this. Uh, we can't do it. That's the finger of God himself. Now Jesus uses this phrase because what he's saying here is this. If you can't discern that what I'm doing is of God, then you're more blind than Pharaoh's magicians. This is the finger of God, and the kingdom of God is in your midst. And if you think this is of the devil, then you're, blinder, then you're more blind than Pharaoh's own magicians. And now Jesus is going to tell a little parable, a little story, uh, that will explain what is really going on as he's casting out demons. In fact, why Jesus is here at all. He's not Satan casting out demons. Rather, here's what he says. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Folks, that is what Jesus is doing. And that's what I want to focus on here this morning. Let's pray for a moment. Ask God to anoint this message. Father, I thank you for every person who's hearing this message, whether they're in the auditorium right now or whether it's through podcasting. And I pray, God, that you would open up all of our eyes and all of our minds and all of our hearts to receive your word and Holy Spirit. Would you anoint this word to do what human words alone can never do? And that is fundamentally change us, change our outlook. Father, help us if we think we've got it because chances are we haven't got it. Wake us up to a reality that we're, we so easily in this culture overlook. And Lord, use this message to uh, have the coin drop in the slot for some people, to become the radical, sold-out, countercultural, subversive kingdom warriors that you've called us to be. Let it be done, Lord. Only you can do this. In Jesus' name. And all God's warriors said, Amen. 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 
you ask most Western people why Jesus had to come to earth, why Jesus had to die, the answer you're probably going to get is something like this. Well, Jesus came to earth uh, to save us. And the way he saves us is by somehow uh, through his death, he enters into a legal transaction with the Father. In the Western tradition, we tend to see everything in terms of a legal uh, framework. And so we see salvation in terms of a legal framework. And so somehow, it's quite mysterious, but Jesus enters into this legal transaction with the Father. And if we profess Jesus as Lord, then we benefit from that legal transaction. And we're, we're saved from hell and our sins are forgiven. And there's some truth to that because the Bible does sometimes talk that way. But see, if that is your, your only idea of why Jesus became a man and, and died on the cross, to do this legal transaction, and then if you just say the magical prayer, you benefit from it. If that's your, your, your view, it has a number of, of unfortunate consequences and raises a number of problems. A few of them are these. On the one hand, that understanding of, of, of what Jesus did is extremely individualistic. It's about me and Jesus. So I personally believe in him and I personally benefit from this legal transaction that he mysteriously did uh, when he died on the cross. It's very individualistic and it completely misses the, the corporate uh, community nature of the kingdom as it's found in the New Testament. A, a second thing is this. If it's all about me believing a certain thing and saying a certain thing to benefit from a certain legal transaction, then the way I actually live, my behavior is relatively unimportant. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm right with God if I just say this prayer and believe these things. So my behavior becomes completely, really inconsequential. And no doubt it would be good if my behavior reflected God's values and priorities, but, but it's not essential. What's essential is I say the prayer and benefit from the legal transaction. And that, I think, has catastrophic implications for the church. George Barna and a number of other researchers have shown indisputably that in America in particular, the difference in terms of how people live and what they value and what they believe and how they behave, the difference between professing Christians and those who don't profess Christ is almost non-existent. People who answer a pollster by saying, I believe in Jesus and I'm saved, uh, their, their life and their values and their priorities are almost identical to that of the, their pagan neighbors. And that I submit to you, if the gospel means anything, it should mean that that shouldn't be there. But see, it's really a fallout, it's an implication, it's a consequence of this legal view of salvation. The view isn't totally wrong, but it's, but it's incomplete. The passage that we're looking at here this morning gives us a fuller understanding of why Jesus came to earth. And it goes along with many other passages we could cite here. But according to this passage, the story that Jesus tells, Jesus came to overpower the strong man who is the devil. And Jesus came to take back the house that the strong man occupies because it's God's house. And Jesus came to set the captives free and to divide up the spoils, the plunder of the house with those former slaves. That, folks, is why Jesus came to earth. Now, to, now to understand that, we've got to paint a, a broader picture here. And I, I come back to this with some frequency because the biblical worldview on this matter is so antithetical to the normal Western American worldview that we need to constantly be reminded of it. Uh, we need to constantly come back to this to confront our normal cultural conditioning. The background is simply this. 
As many of you know, in our primordial past, uh, human beings surrendered their authority over to the devil. We were supposed to be the lords of this earth and under God's reign, carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven, but we surrendered that over to the devil and other fallen angels. The Bible now calls the principalities and powers. And in the biblical worldview, this world has literally been seized by evil forces that are hostile to God. And I know that may sound hocus-pocus if you're looking at it from a Western mindset, but that just shows you how screwed up our Western mindset is, because this is the biblical worldview. And so the Bible says, for example, in John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. It says that Satan is the God, the God of this age, the principality and, and, and power of the air, the ruler of this world, Jesus calls him. Satan is, in, in Luke chapter 4, he, he's depicted as having authority over all the kingdoms of the, world, of the world and over all the governments of the world. And he claims, and Jesus doesn't dispute this, that he can give that authority to whoever he wants. All of this shows that this world as it now is, is oppressed, and to a significant degree at least, controlled by... One who is strong and hostile to God. It shows that a strong man has, uh, over, has occupied God's house and made it his fortress. The world was supposed to be God's house and humans, humans were supposed to be its landlords. But the whole thing has gotten turned over to Satan when we rebelled. And now, rather than being the house's landlords, we become the slaves. And we become part of the property in this house that is now owned and operated by Satan. That's why, and this goes against our normal American optimistic way of looking at the world, an optimistic view of human nature, but folks, according to the Bible, we are slaves. We are slaves to sin. Left to our own devices, we are slaves. We are under his authority, which is why, according to the Bible, we can't free ourselves. And according to the Bible, we can't free this house. In fact, we can't fix this house. There is a demonic pollution in this world that, that we breathe and it reaches our hearts and it reaches our minds and it dulls us and it corrupts us and it keeps us in bondage. It's why, despite some of our best intentions, our attempts to fix things often just breaks them further. It's why some of our best intentions backfire and make things worse. Worse. It is why this, this, this demonic influence that permeates things, it's why, it, despite the fact that we are very intelligent animals, I mean, we can invent stuff, we can discover stuff, we can create stuff in science and the arts and culture and music, we're, we, we can be brilliant. But despite all of that, let's be honest, we can be and often are, maybe even usually are, profoundly stupid. <laughs> Amen? We're profoundly stupid. It's an odd conundrum. The clearest, the clearest example of this diabolically influenced stupidity, in my opinion, is the fact that despite how smart we can be, we haven't figured out a way to stop killing each other. In fact, often, it's a manifestation of the oppression that I'm talking about. Often, our very attempts to find a way to stop killing each other results in us killing each other even more. For example, Albert Einstein, God bless his heart and God bless his mind, a genius who was totally opposed to any form of violence. He helped and even encouraged creating the atom bomb. And the reason was because he believed that this 
nightmarish weapon would be the ultimate deterrent to war. He was also afraid that if, if we didn't invent it, the, the uh, Germans might invent it first. They had Heisenberg, who was one of the uh, founders of quantum mechanics, and he had become a Nazi and was working for the Nazi party, and Einstein knew him, and so he was afraid that Heisenberg might develop uh, atom bombs. So we got to do it first, and this will be an ultimate deterrent to war. He, to his horror, we actually used it. He didn't think that would ever happen. And that itself shows how we human beings are oppressed. We've never had a technology that we could refrain from using. It has never happened in history. In fact, we've never had a technology we could refrain from using uh, and, and, and use it for evil. Uh, we have a compulsion. When we develop something, we've got to use it. And invariably, every great discovery we've ever had has in one way or another, sooner or later, been used to further the process of killing people. We can't help ourselves. Never have we had information about things that we, we didn't eventually turn into technology. We always eventually do it. This is why we ought to be a little bit concerned with what's going on with cloning right now. We already are cloning animals. In fact, they're selling cloned meat. Uh, and they say that it's just a matter of time, maybe within six, seven, at the most ten years before we have the capacity to clone a human being. And of course, everyone's saying, well, we'll pass laws against that and it won't happen. Well, if, if it didn't happen, it'd be the first time in history we've ever had the capacity to do something and didn't do it. And think of the massive ethical issues that that raises. Think of the tremendous evil that can be done through that. Um, I mean, th this, is, this is a frightful thing. And you'd think, because we're so smart, we would first sit down and say, okay, let's work out the issues before we even investigate it any further, before we learn how to do it. Let's think through the issues and resolve them. But that's another thing that we human beings never do. We, we, we act first and then think later and often go, oops, we didn't know it had that kind of implication. Something in the spiritual realm is making us profoundly stupid. And then we think that if we have information, we can contain it. Another diabolical stupidity. When there's a dollar to be made, if there's any lesson in history, it's this. If there's a dollar to be made, someone's going to make it. And if you've got information that someone else doesn't have, it's just a price. Someone's going to pay the price. And so this information about nuclear technology that we had, someone sells it. And now we've got seven nuclear countries. One of them is Pakistan, where a lot of extremist Muslims live, which is why our government is very concerned about what's going on over there, because these extremists would love to get their hands on this nuclear power. And that could be uh, a very unfortunate turn of events. And what all this has done is made everybody in the house paranoid. You can picture all the world leaders as sort of like 10 guys in a room. And they're all suspicious of one another and fearful of one another. And 100 years ago, we all had sticks. We're looking at each other. Who's going to hit first? If you hit me, I'll hit you back harder. Okay, so we're all sitting there with sticks. Then somebody, you know, found a, a billy club, comes into the room with a billy club. So he's got a billy club. Now we all got to get billy clubs because you can't fight a billy club with a stick. Then someone comes in with a gun. So we all got to get guns because you can't fight a gun with a billy club. Then someone comes in with a machine gun. So we all got to go out and get machine guns. And someone comes in with an Uzi. So we all got to go out and get Uzi. Someone comes in with a, with a, a cannon. And we all got to go out and get cannons. And finally, somebody shows up with a giant bomb says, I can blow us all the smithereens ten times over. So now everyone's got to go out and get one of those bombs. This is insanity. And we can't figure out a way to just put that stuff down. It goes on and on and on. And we make tremendous sacrifices to keep up this rat race. For example, in 2006, global military spending was approaching one and a half trillion dollars. Now, to put that in perspective, according to the United Nations, for a mere 40 billion dollars, 
we could house and feed all the poor of the world for a year. $40 billion is only about 3% of what the world spent on killing machines last year. The U.S. alone last year in Iraq spent six times that amount. This is, this is insane. And I don't care what your politics is about. Maybe you think, oh yeah, it's insane, but we live in an insane world, and so we've got to do it. Fine, but it is an insane world. A world that leads people to act like this when people are starving, we spend all of our money on killing. That is insane. Close to half of the world's military spending is done by the U.S., $626 billion in 2006. Our own military spending could have housed and fed the world's poor 15 times over. I don't care what your politics are, that's insane. We can't figure out a way to take 3% of the military spending and feed and house people. Check out this chart. Last year, the uh, discretionary allocation of U.S. tax dollars went this way. 41% of it went to our military budget, the highest slice of the pie. 12% went to responding to issues related to poverty. It means that last year we spent three and a half times more on weapons to kill than we spend on feeding and housing people. Folks, that's stupid. That's, that's just stupid. Now you may say, well, that's what we have to do given the world. Yes, but the world, that's my, here's my point. The world is stupid. If aliens were to come down and say, can we check out your budget, see how you do things? They'd look at this and they'd say, man, you guys are stupid. <laughs> and they'd be right. Stupid or evil, and they'd be right on that one too. What explains this? Now, the minute you ask that question, everyone says, well, it's their fault. No, it's their fault. You know, if he put down the gun, I put down the gun. Well, if you put down the gun, I put down the gun. Well, he's got a bomb, so I got to get a bomb. And we blame everyone else. But I submit to you that this level of insanity requires a supernatural explanation. Yeah. And the Bible gives it to us. We are under the oppression of something that, despite our intelligence, makes us dull. It jades us. It corrupts us. We have the brilliance to clone animals, but we can't figure out a way Stop killing each other. We can't find a way to take 3% of our killing money and feed and house the poor. That's insane. We can afford to stockpile enough weapons to kill every human being on the planet 12 times over, but we can't figure out a way to take a fraction of that and feed the world one time over. That is insane. And what it does is it reveals that our hearts and minds are polluted and jaded and corrupted because we're, we're, we're breathing corrupted air. We're under the oppression of an evil empire. It explains why human history is one mundane, monotonous cycle of violence. It's a river of blood, and we never learn from our past mistakes. We keep on saying this is the war to end all wars, and if only we kill enough evildoers, the world would be a safe place. Kingdom people, we have got to be the tribe on the planet that sees this, that understands this, that has a perspective of what is really going on in this world. We need to wake up. We've got to understand in our gut, not just in our head, that we live in a war zone. And one of the reasons why I am so passionate about this, it's one of the central things of my ministry, I feel called to this, is because the Western church on the whole doesn't live like this. We don't see it. We are asleep. We live and spend on the whole like every other American. We live and spend as though we were on a picnic rather than in the middle of a war zone. The picture I get is something like this, and I don't think this is really an exaggeration. Imagine a nice Christian German family in 1944, and the father of the family works at one of the concentration camps, Auschwitz. 
And therefore the family is housed in one of the nice barracks that they have there. And they got a little separate playground for the families to go to. And it's just upwind from the gas chamber so they don't need to smell a rotting flesh. And so they go on a picnic on a Sunday afternoon. The family goes out. They're oblivious to all the death and destruction going on around them. And they enjoy their nice sandwich and they enjoy the nice weather and they enjoy the kids swinging on the swing set and they're totally oblivious to what's going on around them. But because they profess to be Christians, uh, God is, is talking to them, trying to talk to them, saying, folks, uh, this isn't the time to be taking a picnic. This is the time for you to be reaching out and finding ways to free some of my people and, 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 and to risk your lives if necessary uh, in order to help and serve and free some of my people. But you see, these folks are just so enjoying their sandwich and the weather is so nice and the swing sets are so fun, they block out the voice of God and they live as though they were on picnic. I submit to you that we in the West especially, we have been brainwashed by a picnic, uh, picnic mentality while we're in the middle of Auschwitz. And the picnic illusion is called the American dream. We sleepwalk to a large degree. We've been mesmerized by the powers to be addicted to stuff. We chase stuff. We feel perpetually empty. Whatever we get, we need more. And so our whole attention is, is focused on acquiring more picnic things. And then when we're so busy enjoying our nice picnic, enjoying our nice house and, and car and clothes and, and our, the convenience of our wonderful life that we don't hear the voice of God who is saying, church, wake up. This is not picnic time. This is not normal. This is Auschwitz all around you. A war is going on. Have eyes to see and ears to hear the reality of what's going on around you. And I'm calling on you to be my warriors. Souls are at stake. Lives are at stake. People are hurting. And you're to be the tribe, my bride, my army that is willing to forsake the picnic mi mindset and do something about this. And I've empowered you to do this. Don't be any longer conformed to the American dream and don't be any longer conformed to the self-indulgent, self-convenience, addicted to stuff lifestyle. Rather, be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and be conformed to the Calvary, Jesus-looking lifestyle. And folks, this, this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. He didn't just come to do a legal transaction in the heavenly realms that gets us off the hook. He didn't come just to give us another blessing. He didn't come just to relieve us from our guilt. And he didn't come just to give us fire insurance by getting us out of hell. Those are all fringe benefits, side effects of why he came. He came. The central reason he came was to overpower this strong man. To free us slaves, to reconcile us to God, and to equip us to join him in taking back the house. He came to restore us as the landlords of the house under his authority. He came to take back what belongs to God. When Jesus comes into this world, he's coming into God's house under the rulership of the strong man, and he declares with his life, this house belongs to my father, and I've been sent to take it back. Amen. And here's how he does it. He lives a sinless life. And therefore the devil has no hold on him. He says that in John 8. The devil has no hold on me. Because it's only our sin that gives the devil a hold on us. A stronghold in our life. He lives a sinless life. And then through his life and his ministry and his teachings and his death and his resurrection, he overpowers the strong man. And now he's turned to us, all who will say yes to him and submit our lives to him. He's freed us and empowered us to begin recovering our role as the house's landlords by joining him in this conquest. That's what, that's what he's getting at when he says he wants to divide up the spoils. The goods of the house, he wants to give back to us because we were the rightful owners of it. And so our job, kingdom people, 
the central, center part of our job is to get out of the picnic mentality and take back the rest of the house. Your mind is part of the furniture of the house. Take it back for God. Your, your heart is part of God's house. Take it back for God. Your body is part of God's house. Take it back for God. Your family and your neighborhood is part of God's house. Take it back for God. The beautiful diversity of the different ethnic groups are part of God's house. We're supposed to take it back for God. The world is God's house and he's power, empowered us and freed us to take it back for God in Jesus' name. We carry out, we continue and Fill out the process that Jesus began with his life, death, and resurrection. Now, everything hangs on how we do this. How are we supposed to do this? And here's what I've learned. When I use take back for God language, or we use warfare language, or overpower language. Yeah, you overpowered the strong man. As Jill mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, people can misunderstand that. It can, I've learned, press some of our redneck buttons. I've been amazed at the redneck use to which my book, God at War, has been used. I, some people, and then it's like, that's not what I meant. See, what, what happens is you use warfare, overpower, you know, take back language. Some people will say, yeah, we, we got to gain control of the world. We're going to run the world. We're going to beat the Muslims. We're going to win the culture wars. We're going we're gonna to rid the world of evildoers. And see, that mindset, that Arnold Schwarzenegger military conqueror mindset, it just further feeds the powers. You can't fix the world that way. You're empowering the powers. And when you do that, you end up doing stupid stuff. But now you're doing stupid stuff in Jesus' name, which is the worst kind of stupid stuff. And you look at church history and there's all sorts of stupid stuff done in Jesus' name. We're the church militant and triumphant. The conquistadors, we're going to conquer the world. And so in Jesus' name, we start putting people to death. That's stupid. And it pushes back and empowers the powers and it pushes back the kingdom of God. The way we take things back is the way Jesus takes things back. Military might can't overthrow the devil because the devil's all over the military and political power can't overthrow the devil because according to Luke 4, he's all over the political power. Jesus overpowers evil not with military or political power but by doing the one and only thing that can ever overcome evil. And that is by giving himself up as a sacrifice out of love. Only love can conquer evil ultimately. Everything else can suppress it temporarily maybe, but ultimately it feeds into it. Rather than trying to overpower the devil by calling on legions of angels or using Peter's sword, he could have done that, but he foregoes that and he says, I'm not going to use that kind of power. The kind of power I'm going to use is revealed this way. Crucify me. And in doing that, he... The light shines in the darkness and the love confronts the evil. And that manifestation of love is what broke the back of the evil powers. And that, folks, is where the hope of the world lies. I want to strongly encourage you, don't pin any of your hope or leverage any of your peace on our ever-increasing military might. And don't pin any of your hope or leverage any of your peace on who's going to get elected this time around. And don't pin any of your hope uh, or leverage any of your peace on new scientific discoveries. And don't, don't leverage any of your hope or pin any, uh, leverage any of your peace on how the economy is doing. Put all of your hope in Jesus Christ and put all of your energy into living the way he called us to live. That's the hope of the world. That's the only thing 
that can overcome evil. It is the strongest force in the universe. The reason why Jesus was stronger than the strong man was not because he had a bigger bicep and bigger guns. The reason why Jesus could overcome the strong man is because the strong man is about evil, but Jesus is about love. And believe it or not, self-sacrificial love is stronger than evil. And it ultimately wins the day. It doesn't look like that maybe to us in this world because we are polluted and corrupted by the powers. Our common sense has been polluted by the powers. On Good Friday, getting crucified doesn't look like the right thing to do. But the promise of God is that you live this sacrificial lifestyle, that's your way of doing warfare, and it wins in the end. This is how we take back the stuff in the house. Take back your mind. Not by getting mad at your mind for all the lies you believe, not by declaring war on your mind because all the crust that's in there. No, no. You take back your mind by just dedicating your mind to loving God with that mind, loving yourself with your mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself with that mind. Take your mind back for God. Just bring it in the kingdom. And you take your heart back for God, not by getting mad at all how jaded your emotions are because of the wounds of your past and all those things. No, no, you, 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 you take back your heart by dedicating your heart to loving God with that beautiful heart and loving yourself with that beautiful heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. And you take back your body, not by getting mad at your body for all the sins you've done within the past. Repent of those. Turn from those. No, but you take your body back by loving your body. Love God with your body, love yourself with your body, and love your neighbor with your body. To dedicate your body to being involved in kingdom actions, serving people and loving people. And you take your family back... For God, not by lording over your family and insisting on your way. Men, listen up to this one. You take your family back for God by serving your family, loving your family, being Jesus to your family, being patient with your family, getting on your, on, on your knees and washing the feet of your family. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved you, loved the church and gave his life for it. We take back the diversity of ethnic groups for God, not by imposing stuff on the different groups, trying to force something with power, but rather by loving and serving all the people of the different ethnic groups. We take back the world by replicating Calvary in big ways and in small ways 24-7 throughout our life. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. That's how we kick devil butt. That's how we take back and plunder the house. That's how we're restored as earth landlords. So I want to ask this question in closing. And Holy Spirit, I just pray right now, you make us honest with ourselves. Are you, do you see your life as a soldier? Are you a soldier? Uh, do you see the world as this demonic concentration camp? It's so easy not to see that because we're in America. But that's just part of the pollution that we breathe. You know, if you join a physical army, join the U.S. Army, the captain will come to you or the trainer will say, you belong to me, soldier! And they'll train you and they'll discipline you and you give up civilian rights because now you're part of the military. And if that is true of physical armies, shouldn't it be true of the spiritual army? Are we being disciplined by our Lord to be a good and faithful soldier in this army of outrageous love? Do you see yourself as a soldier? Or have you bought into the picnic mentality? Holy Spirit, make us honest here. Make us honest. Search your heart. Have you been infected with the self-indulgent, self-convenience lifestyle? And it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy stuff. It can't, doesn't mean you can't go on vacation. Uh, you know, soldiers need to take furloughs. Yes, enjoy, fine. But I'm talking about how do we look at the world and how do we see ourselves? Lord, open up our eyes to see, like Elijah's servants, to see the spiritual reality around us. Another question I want us to just end with is this. Do you, can you, will you trust 
the foolishness of the cross as the power to those who believe. That's a quote from Paul. Will you trust the power of self-sacrificial love and that is greater than evil? Are there areas of your life, Holy Spirit, make us honest with ourselves. Are there areas of our life where we're yet trusting a different kind of power, where you're trusting your ability to enforce your will on another because you have a louder voice or maybe a stronger arm or a stronger personality or you can manipulate better? Are there areas of your life where you're acting like Caesar rather than Christ? Holy Spirit, make us honest with ourselves. So Lord, I just right now pray that you be moving in our midst. Seal on our hearts what we need to have sealed. Help us. The minute we walk out of here, Lord, we'll be once again bombarded with the pollution that will get us to think differently. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember your truth and have eyes to see and ears to hear the reality of what's going on around us. And God, for some here, you're calling them to a radical, radically different way of doing life. Lord, protect them from fear on that. Make them bold and make the decisions they need to make. Thank you, Lord, for enlisting us, calling us. Help us to stay free from mundane affairs so that we're always seeking to please our enlisting, our commanding officer. In Jesus' name. And all the soldiers of God's army said, Amen, amen, amen. Soldiers, go out and do battle in Jesus' name and in Jesus' way. If you're here this morning and you would like to have prayer for anything, I want you to come forward. Our prayer team will be up here. Come forward and get prayer. And if you have never enlisted in the war, come forward and enlist. These folks will tell you how to do it. God bless you guys. Go out and do battle.